Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, we are talking about one of the modern world's most infamous incidents of unethical medical research. It is the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, which started in 1932 and ran until 1972. The study's researchers told its participants that they were being treated for syphilis, but in reality, they were not. And the entire point of the study was actually to observe how untreated syphilis progressed in black men. So this study itself was part of a much greater pattern in medical history of white doctors conducting unethical studies, experiments, and procedures on minority patients. In terms of black patients, this pattern includes the work of J. Marion Sims, who's known as the father of gynecology, who conducted surgeries on enslaved women without anesthesia. You can hear more about that in our sister podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You, in the episode, The Mothers of Gynecology. It also includes the use of cancer cells taken from Henrietta Lacks without her consent, which you can learn about in Rebecca Skloot's exceptional book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And as we discussed in our 2014 podcast on the Doctor's Riot of 1788, this pattern even continued after death, with grave robbers overwhelmingly using black cemeteries as their source for medical cadavers. Apart from its deeply unethical setup, the Tuskegee study had real and damaging effects that continued long after it was over, all of which we will talk about today. So to give you a brief primer on syphilis, syphilis is a disease caused by the bacterium Treponema pallidum. And while there are other similar diseases in the same family that are spread through casual contact, syphilis is spread through sexual activity. It can also move through the placenta during pregnancy, leading to congenital syphilis in newborn babies. There are several hypotheses about where this disease first originated. We know for sure that it was present in the Americas prior to Christopher Columbus's first voyage. So the most popular explanation is that it was carried back to Europe on Columbus's ships in 1493. And then it spread really rapidly from there because the population had no immunity to it. There are also other theories that syphilis was already present outside the Americas at that point, but was more misdiagnosed as leprosy, which is now known as Hansen's disease. In this second theory, the disease evolved to become more virulent in the 15th century, and it was coincidentally after Columbus's first voyage. In its first stage, syphilis presents as a sore on the location where the bacteria entered the body. That sore usually goes away within three to six weeks, even if it's untreated. But the disease at that point is not cured. It typically returns in a second stage marked by a rash that's sometimes the only symptom, but it can also be accompanied by swollen lymph nodes, fever, fatigue, achiness, and general symptoms of being unwell. Those symptoms also resolve without treatment. From there, syphilis goes into a latent phase when it's not treated, and there are no symptoms at all. Sometimes that lasts for the rest of the person's life. But for up to 30% of people who don't receive treatment, syphilis enters a very serious tertiary phase 10 to 30 years after the initial infection. This stage can affect multiple parts of the body, including the heart and brain. Third Third stage syphilis can cause large sores on the body, 
blindness, mental disorders, destruction of bone and soft tissue, paralysis, organ failure, and death. It's primarily this third debilitating, disfiguring, and deadly phase that shows up in art and literature, as well as in explanations for the brutal or erratic behaviors of various monarchs, including Ivan the Terrible. Regardless of whether syphilis was really present outside the Americas prior to 1493, as it spread through the 15th century and beyond, it became really heavily stigmatized. People quickly understood that it was spread through sexual contact, and that meant that in many cultures and religions, it was associated with sinfulness and immoral behavior. Folklore about the origin of syphilis also frequently connected it to Hansen's disease, and that disease is also heavily stigmatized and then culturally associated with sin and with being, quote, unclean. Syphilis was so reviled that nations named it after whichever country they thought it came from. So in Italy, Germany, and the British Isles, it was the French disease. But in France, it was the Neapolitan disease. Russia blamed Poland, and Poland blamed Germany. In some places, different religions took the blame, with Hindus and Muslims each blaming each other in northern India. Compounding all of the layers of stigma was the fact that there wasn't a very effective treatment available for syphilis until the 20th century. Physicians tried a range of herbs, compounds, and practices, and by the 16th century, the most common treatment was mercury, which was highly toxic and not particularly effective. In 1884, doctors started using bismuth salts, which were less toxic and somewhat more effective than mercury, but still only offered a cure about 30% of the time. And that was after months of difficult treatment that had high rates of side effects, including death. An arsenic derivative known as Compound 606 was developed in 1909, and that was apparently effective, although it was difficult to administer, and it could cause tissue damage and death if it were given improperly. Okay, I tried to find some real solid information about how effective Compound 606 was. Uh, it was apparently hailed as a, a miracle, but since it was replaced relatively quickly and far far enough in the past that we don't have a lot of evidence-based medical data about it. I'm not quite sure whether it was as effective as people billed it as at the time. Uh, the reason it was replaced pretty quickly was that in 1928, Alexander Fleming discovered the antibiotic penicillin, which was far, far safer for treating anything, but particularly syphilis, than compounds made from toxic metals are. It became the standard treatment for syphilis in 1943. And this synopsis we've given is really an overview. If you want to know more about the history of syphilis treatment, check out the Sawbones episode on syphilis from March of 2015. In the mid-1920s in the United States, syphilis was a public health crisis. Conservative estimates put the rate of infection at 10 to 15 percent, but estimates go as high as 35 percent of those people of reproductive age. A 1929 study of rural Alabama counties had found that it was particularly high in Macon County, Alabama, home of the Tuskegee Institute. The Tuskegee Institute, which is now Tuskegee University, was founded on July 4th, 1881, as Tuskegee Normal School for Colored Teachers. A normal school was a teacher's college, and Tuskegee was established after the state of Alabama passed legislation that authorized its creation. 
Tuskegee's first teacher was Dr. Booker T. Washington. It became an independent institution of higher learning, the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, in 1892. Tuskegee became home to more than just the university. In 1923, it opened the Tuskegee VA Hospital to provide long-term care for black veterans. It was also home to the Tuskegee Airmen's Flight Training Program in World War II. There's actually an episode on them in our archive from past hosts Candace and Jane. The research on untreated syphilis that we're talking about today was conducted by the U.S. Public Health Service, but it took place at Tuskegee Institute with the involvement of some of the staff there, and we are going to talk about it after a quick sponsor break. The Tuskegee study was not the only one in history to observe untreated syphilis. For example, a study at the Oslo Venereal Clinic in Norway withheld treatment from nearly 2,000 patients between 1890 and 1910. That clinic's chief doctor was convinced, pretty understandably so, that the syphilis treatments available at the time were actually worthless. To protect the rest of the community from the spread of infection during the study, the Oslo team kept the participants hospitalized until they were symptom-free. The Oslo study found that for about 70% of the patients, once the disease reached a latent phase, they had no further problems and they weren't contagious. But for the other 30%, the tertiary stage followed and it was serious and severe. Once compound 606 was introduced, the Oslo study was ended. The study had demonstrated that untreated syphilis could be serious or deadly, making it unethical to withhold an effective, though risky, treatment once it was available. Yeah, there are plenty of other ethical questions about this study. It's it's complicated by the fact that, that the doctor running the study was correct in the fact that the treatments that were available were not actually doing much. But the study did stop once there was a treatment that people did think actually worked uh, available to them. So this Oslo study was one of two that informed the Tuskegee syphilis study. The other was the 1929 study we referred to before the break. That one was a U.S. Public Health Service study as well, and it was paid for by the Rosenwald Fund. It was undertaken with the goal of figuring out whether a mass syphilis treatment program would be feasible or successful in rural areas, and its findings suggested that, yes, a mass treatment program would. Unfortunately, 1929 also saw the start of the Great Depression. Funding for a mass treatment program for black patients with a sexually transmitted disease already would have been incredibly difficult to find, but with the Great Depression, it became impossible. The Rosenwald study and its optimistic conclusions about the success of a treatment program fell by the wayside. But in 1932, Dr. Talia Farrow-Clark, chief of the U.S. Public Health Service Venereal Disease Division, who had actually authored that 1929 study, Return to those results with an idea for another approach. This would be a counterpoint to the previous Oslo study, which had been on white subjects. Theorizing that syphilis progressed differently among black patients than white patients, Clark decided to take advantage of the high rate of syphilis infection in Macon County and observe how the disease progressed when left untreated in black men over a period of six months. Underpinning this plan were a set of racist stereotypes about black men, their sexual behavior, and their supposed lack of interest in or compliance with medical treatment. Basically, was the idea was that if these men weren't going to get treated anyway, the medical community might as well observe what happened when they didn't. 
Clark called this a, quote, ready-made situation to conduct, quote, a study in nature. As a side note, the racism threaded through this study did not end with the stereotypes that were framing how the white medical establishment was approaching it. This is not really a matter of a set of implicit biases that were guiding them in such a strange and horrifying direction. The correspondence of the study's white doctors with one another are laced with incredibly racist attitudes and views. They are gross. (laughs) Every time I would find another quotation from one of them, I would get angrier because they are really, really offensive. U.S. Surgeon General Hugh Smith Cumming then contacted R.R. Moten, director of the Tuskegee Institute, to enlist the Institute's help, calling the proposed study a, quote, an unparalleled opportunity for carrying on this piece of scientific research, which probably cannot be duplicated anywhere else in the world. In that same letter, Cummings said the study could have, quote, a marked bearing on the treatment or conversely the non-necessity of treatment in cases of latent syphilis. The Tuskegee Institute ultimately agreed to cooperate, and later in 1932, Dr. Raymond Vonderler began trying to recruit black men with syphilis who were between the ages of 25 and 60 for the study. He ran into difficulty really quickly. When he advertised that this study was open to men with a minimum age of 25, people suspected that he was actually there conducting draft physicals, and nobody came. So even though the study was only to be done on men, the initial physicals were conducted on women as well. Another hiccup was that the prevalence of syphilis in Macon County was not as high as the Rosenwald study had suggested. The Public Health Service had expected an infection rate of 35 percent. But once Vonderler was actually testing subjects, that rate turned out to be more like 20 percent. And completely contrary to the stereotype that the men being studied were innately unlikely to go to the doctor, they found that a lot of Macon County residents had already seen a doctor for syphilis and received treatment. Also, contrary to the prevailing stereotypes, overwhelmingly, the men that Vondeler approached about this study were only willing to participate if participating would result in their being treated. So this idea that was guiding their entire study approach, this idea that black men were unlikely to seek treatment, was completely unfounded. When faced with this dilemma, the doctors involved with the study lied. They told participants they had bad blood and that they were being treated for that. Then, to keep up the deception, the participants were given ineffective, quote, treatments uh, like mercury ointments, aspirin, and actual drugs that were at too low a dose to be effective in any way. Yeah, bad blood was used to describe syphilis, but was also kind of a catch-all term for other diseases as well. Regardless, it was referred to pretty consistently as bad blood when talking to the patients who were part of this study. The doctors also described spinal taps, more accurately called lumbar punctures, as treatment. Even though a spinal tap is not a treatment, uh, they were they were being used to diagnose whether the men had neurosyphilis, so whether they had a syphilis infection in their uh, their brain and their nervous system tissue. Because spinal taps are uncomfortable and they carry risks of complications and side effects, these were scheduled last in the physical exams with the hope that word of their unpleasantness would not spread and lead people to drop out of the study because they were going to have to have a spinal tap. 
when it was time for the spinal taps, the participants got a letter that read, quote, Some time ago, you were given a thorough examination. And since that time, we hope you've gotten a great deal of treatment for bad blood. You will now be given your last chance to get a second examination. This examination is a very special one. And after it is finished, you will be given a special treatment if it is believed you are in a condition to stand it. This language makes me so angry. I've never had a spinal tap. But I drove my mo- my mom back and forth to the doctor for at least one because she has a neurological condition. They're rough. Unpleasant is like, that's the nice word the doctor will say to you. <laughs> yeah, I have not had one either. I have had both friends and relatives that have had them. I witnessed one of them. It was horrifying. Um, once the study reached the end of its original planned six months, the United States Public Health Service decided to continue it indefinitely. In spite of the fact that the subjects had defied their expectations regarding whether they would seek treatment, they still believed that it was, quote, natural to keep this study going. The researchers came to believe that they would need to conduct autopsies, not just examine living patients, in order to get a clear picture of how untreated syphilis progressed. This changed the scope of the study, added a further layer of deception. In addition to keeping secret the fact that the men were not being treated for syphilis, the doctors had to also keep secret that they never would be. And the autopsies were kept secret as well because they were concerned that subjects would leave the study if they found out they would have to be autopsied after they died. Only after the U.S. Public Health Service approved this indefinite extension to the study did the team decide it should also have a control group, and they recruited men who were syphilis-free. If any contracted syphilis during the course of the study, they were then moved to the test group. In the end, there were 399 men in the test group and 201 men in the control group. This is the least of the problems with this study. But moving somebody from your control group into your test group is not, that's not how it's supposed to happen. That's not good science. That's a bad methodology. Like I said, that is the the tiniest of the problems here. So, like we said earlier, a person has, who has a latent syphilis infection can be symptom-free for their whole life. And suspecting that the men would probably drop out of the study after for a while if they continued to be symptom-free and they weren't seeing any benefit to this treatment, the Public Health Service also offered a number of incentives to keep people involved. Subjects received transportation to and from the Tuskegee Institute for their medical exams, as well as a hot meal on the day. They were allowed to stop in town to run errands or visit friends afterward. If they got sick with something besides syphilis, they got medical care for free. Uh, the area where this was taking place was pretty impoverished. A lot of the people in the study were sharecroppers and people who had a very subsistence level of living. So all of these incentives did make the study really appealing for people to participate in. But that still had the complicated question of the autopsy. Knowing that it would be unlikely to secure permission to have an autopsy done if the subject died somewhere other than the hospital... The Public Health Service offered about $50 per person in burial expenses to encourage people to come into the hospital and be admitted if they became ill. That way they would pass away in the hospital and it would make it easier to conduct their autopsy. 
Keeping the study going also required the Tuskegee team to collude with health professionals elsewhere and for incoming directors and officers in the public health service to maintain this deception through multiple changes in administration. They gave lists of participants to doctors in Macon County, to the Alabama Health Department, and to the draft board to make sure none of them treated or recommended treatment to the participants. Apart from the fact that they were literally convincing other doctors to withhold appropriate care, they were also violating participants' privacy by disclosing to a whole lot of other doctors that they had syphilis. Now conceived as a lifelong effort, the Tuskegee study also needed a liaison between its medical team and its subjects and someone to basically ensure the continuity of care for as long as the study lasted. That liaison was Nurse Eunice Rivers Laurie, known as Nurse Rivers for nearly all of the study's duration because she got married later on in her life. A graduate of the Tuskegee Institute's nursing program, Nurse Laurie was an experienced public health nurse. There are a number of contradictory truths about Nurse Laurie's work, which lasted until the study ended, even after she officially retired. She was an active participant in the medical team's deception of the study's subjects. As the liaison between the doctors and the community, she was possibly the most instrumental in getting the men to stick with the study and follow the doctor's instructions. The more social community aspects of the study became known as Miss Rivers Lodge. At the same time, she was caring for men she knew who were part of her community, including as they became ill, suffered, and died as a result of their untreated syphilis. A lot of the depictions of uh, of Eunice Rivers Laurie are either that she was basically a helpless victim of a Jim Crow era South herself, uh, or that she was like a evil participant in this completely racist and unethical study. These are all things that are multiple, like the things we just said are all true at the same time. Right. It's rarely as, as simple and easy to quantify in one statement when you're dealing with a situation like this as hero or villain, good or bad. There are, right. there are layers and layers to the whole thing. Yeah, uh, there's actually a, a HBO um, movie called Miss Evers Boys that is a fictionalized account of this that's basically a fictionalized version of her story. One of the things that we don't have much of, it, much of is uh, documentation from her about how she framed this for herself about, or about how she approached a lot of the huge ethical concerns that were part of her work. Um, so I think a lot of the things that portray her as either a total uh, unwilling person with no agency or a complete villain, like neither of those seems like a an accurate picture. Unlike in the Oslo study, which ended when Compound 606 became available, the Tuskegee study started after Compound 606 was already out. It continued for another 29 years after penicillin became the standard treatment for syphilis. When the study ended, only 74 of its subjects were still living, and the number who had died as a consequence of their untreated syphilis is unclear. It was at least 28, but possibly more than 100. The number of people who contracted syphilis as the result of this study 
which was telling men that they were being treated when they really were not, is unknown. And the damaging effects of the study didn't stop when the study stopped. In July of 2016, a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper reported that when the study became publicly known in 1972, it led to increases in both mistrust of the medical community and in mortality within the black community. The paper estimates that for black men at the age of 45 when the study was exposed, life expectancy dropped by almost a year and a half, contributing to up to 35% of the disparity in life expectancy between black and white men as of 1980. And to be clear, that is everywhere in the United States, not just in Tuskegee, Alabama. Like, this, 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 the fact that the study existed, uh, appears to have led to bad health outcomes, especially for black men, ongoing for decades after the study was over. We will talk about how this study came to light and what happened afterward after another quick sponsor break. Although this study, which was ultimately known as the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, was highly deceptive, It was not in any way secret. Findings were published and presented repeatedly, beginning at the American Medical Association annual meeting in 1936. At least 15 different papers on it were published out in public for people to see over the duration. Even though these reports consistently detailed serious and damaging consequences of untreated syphilis, that alone was never enough to stop the study. A meeting at the Centers for Disease Control about whether to continue the study at which some of the participants of that cons- uh, uh, of that meeting did criticize it as being unethical, they ultimately approved the study to go on, and that was in 1969. Then, in July of 1972, the New York Times and the Washington Post published an Associated Press article called Syphilis Victims in U.S. Study Went Untreated for 40 Years by Gene Heller. And it was this report and the outrage that followed that finally brought about the end of the study. That report was possible thanks to a whistleblower. Also following the study's end... Uh, were congressional hearings and a class action lawsuit filed by civil rights attorney Fred Gray that ended in a $10 million out-of-court settlement. The United States government established the Tuskegee Health Benefit Program to pay for medical care and burials of the participants whose wives and children were later added to the program as well. The Department of Health, Education, and Welfare also formed an advisory panel to evaluate the study, eventually ruling that it was, quote, ethically unjustified. 71 of the survivors' medical records were released in the 1970s. That's less than 20% of those who had been part of the study's infected group. At that point, it was discovered that at least a portion of the participants did wind up receiving at least some penicillin sometime between when it became the standard treatment for syphilis and the end of the study. A lot of the people who did wind up getting some penicillin during the course of the study were treated by two doctors, Dr. Murray Smith of the Macon County Health Department and Dr. Eugene Dibble at the Tuskegee Institute's John A. Andrew Hospital. They both prescribed penicillin to uh, people who were in the test group as a treatment for other conditions, including colds, flu, and back pain. 
It's completely unclear whether this was an accidental oversight of the fact that these men were in the study's test group or if it was an intentional and covert way to treat them for syphilis without raising the red flag from the people running the study. Others were able to receive treatment after moving away from Tuskegee, at which point either the public health service lost track of them or the doctors at their new home refused to withhold treatment from them in spite of the study staff's attempts to convince them otherwise. On May 16, 1997, President Bill Clinton issued an apology for the study on the behalf of the government, specifically naming the eight men in the study who were at that point still living. Carter Howard, Frederick Moss, Charlie Pollard, Herman Shaw, Fred Simmons, Sam Donner, Ernest Hendon, and George Key. Five of the men were present at this apology, and the three who could not attend were uh, represented by members of their family. The last surviving participant of the study died in 2004. There's a widespread and very persistent piece of misinformation that the men in the study were deliberately infected with syphilis. This, based on all the information available, is completely untrue. There was, however, a completely different U.S. Public Health Service study conducted in Guatemala in the 1940s, which did indeed infect its subjects with sexually transmitted infections on purpose. That was actually uncovered while the researcher was uh, looking for information about the Tuskegee study, and they happened to find, this is in like 2005, not that long ago, happened to find documents about this Guatemala study um, that definitely did infect people with sexually transmitted diseases. Another piece of misinformation that's followed the study, and is it's a piece of min- misinformation, and yet it's responsible for important work, is that its main flaws were its failure to get participants informed consent, and that the withholding of the penicillin once it was available uh, was unethical. But th- these are really kind of beside the point. Compound 606 was available as a syphilis treatment before the study even started. So even though penicillin was a lot safer and had a lot fewer side effects, and I think probably a lot more effective, had trouble answering that question specifically, it wasn't like there was no treatment and then they continued the study after treatment was available. Like there was a treatment available from the beginning, from the very start. And the point was always to withhold treatment. Uh, the failure to get informed consent from the participants is also really secondary to the fact that the study every step of the way was intentionally about deceiving people into participating and then withholding a treatment for a treatable illness without their knowledge. For decades! Yeah, the idea of informed consent, yes, that is really important. I am glad that such a, such a focus on informed consent followed this particular study. Like, there's even a bioethics center at Tuskegee Institute now, in part as a response to the study. All of that is super-duper important. But, like, uh, informed consent, not really the biggest problem in a study that was literally we're going to lie to people and withhold an available treatment for decades until they die and then we will conduct an autopsy on their body and see what happened when like we already knew we already knew what happened yeah uh, which was that untreated syphilis can kill you like we knew that stuff already so well and i i always wonder when we're t- anytime we're talking about uh things like this 
this one in particular because it's recent enough and it's in the South that I feel like, you know, I know the kinds of people who may have been in, employed in, in a place like that. And I'm like, what kind of mental gymnastics were some of these people having to do with themselves to be like, no, no, we have to keep doing this. Yeah. Cause at some point your brain raises a flag and goes, Hey, this is not okay. This is maybe bad. Well, and that's especially like from the first publications, there were people who kind of went, Hey, uh, this seems wrong. And the study continued in spite of the criticism saying, hey, this seems wrong. Um, in spite of the, you know, for the whole time. Um, there are also people who will bring up the fact that, like, uh, Eunice Rivers' Laurie was black. And some of the, the doctors at the Tuskegee Institute who were participating in, like, allowing this to happen on the Tuskegee Institute campus were, were also black. And, like, people will try to wrap their mind around that in such a way of being like, well, it must have been okay if there were black people involved in this treatment on black. No, that's not, that's not correct at all. Uh, and that is really every time I've seen that argument, it's been basically an attempt to derail that. Yes, this was awful. It was wrong and it was racist and it has continued to have damaging effects continuing probably until today. Yeah. I mean, like you said, the thing is, right, like you can't track really the depth and resonance of what this created, because these are people that weren't getting treated, some of whom were presumably sexually active, that probably passed it on to other people. We don't know where the ripples go from there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There are so many lives that can be affected in this sort of echoing horribleness that well and then then when the news came out about it everything was compounded with the fact of like these were doctors who people knew and trusted and in some cases had been seeing for years and people had been seeing uh nurse rivers later known as nurse Laurie, like they had been seeing her for years she had been taking care of them for years and people were like how can i ever trust another doctor ever again and how can i trust the government ever again like there was uh, there were definitely causes to mistrust the medical establishment and the government before that point, but this was such an immediate and visceral uh, response that I think it has carried through for generations. Yeah, and you you can't fault someone at that point for having no faith in in uh you know the medical treatments available to them or the medical professionals available to them which stinks it's such a disservice to the rest of the medical community like in addition to the people that were being victimized by this horrible study obviously we feel ways about this uh and i laugh not not to make light of it but just to uh to to laugh at uh, how em- embroiled in our hearts it becomes yeah i've researched a lot of really horrifying horrifying episodes on this show and like this is one of the hardest ones to me yeah yeah uh what's the listener mail situation it's on a much lighter a much lighter note than this it's also a throwback to an episode that was from a while ago this is from Shelly. Shelly says, hi, Holly and Tracy. She has an introduction to us and some thank yous and then she says I recently listened to the podcast about Hildegard of Bingen However, I quickly realized that I must have mistaken this Hildegard for a different of the same name that I'm familiar with. No worries. I'm game for an adventure in learning. I learned from the two of you about her church training and her choice to be an anchoress. And then I hear it. Her musical training. Again, you mentioned her lyric poems and hymns and the musical lines that go with them. 
This is why I tuned into the podcast. So this podcast really made me scratch my head. I have a master's degree in music, and Hildegard is a huge part of our music history courses. Yet you only mention her musical contributions in passing, and then in all capital letters with an exclamation point. This is crazy. I had no idea about any of her journeys in life. Sure, I knew she was a religious gal, as uh, most Western music of the Middle Ages is liturgical in origin, but I had no clue of the extent of her religious commitments. I was inspired to go through some of my old music history books and brush up on Hildegard, and sure enough, the extent of her religious involvements are not mentioned much. There are two sentences that describe her visions. Quote, During moments that we might today identify as severe migraine headaches, she heard voices and saw visions accompanying, accompanied by great flashes of light, a serpent like Satan devouring petals of a scarlet rose or the blood of Christ streaming in the heavens, for example. And that was from Wright Sims, uh, Music and Western Civilization. They later credit those visions with her, quote, extremely colorful visions in her music. The music industry is a male dominated Arena, but Hildegard was crashing through the glass ceilings in the 11th century. She left many chants preserved in her symphonia as well as her liturgical drama, Ordo Virtuum, the first religious opera. I recently recommended your podcast to a friend of mine. I got her hooked with the Haunted Mansion episodes. And being a musician, a college music professor on her own, she also picked out Hildegard to Bingen for a listen. She almost turned the episode off because she thought it was the wrong Hildegard. Hildegard to Bingen is a staple in every trained musician's curriculum. Every conservatory school and department of music student has had a listening and content test on her. She's a really big deal in bold with an exclamation point. After discussing this and being truly astonished, the lack of music mentioned in your episode, we laughed it off. I'm inspired by what an astonished, astonishing woman she was. Thank you, ladies, for this was truly something I missed in history class. Keep up the great work, Shelly. Thank you for the note, Shelly. I had an interesting <laughs> response to this email, which is that uh, what seems weird to me is to have um, a focus on Hildegard that is solely on her music. Because her religious instruction and upbringing and the fact that she was able, able, I mean, I say able in quotation marks, her parents literally gave her to the church possibly as part of the tithe. Like all of those things are how she was even able to have a body of music as part of her work because she was devoting her life uh, to God and living in uh, a monastic setting. So... It is strange to me, like, it doesn't surprise me that people who have a music history degree would know about Hildegard primarily through her music, but she did a lot of other things besides write music. Um, she was also shattering glass ceilings in terms of her writing and in terms of her religious instructions of other people and in terms of, like, uh, founding, um, fa- like, founding a religious community of women. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that music w- instruction would focus primarily on her music, but like that's definitely not the only thing, or I would even argue the core thing about Hildegard and her life and work. Yeah. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook, Facebook.com slash History, and on Twitter at Missed in History. Basically, all of our social media are at the username Missed in History. You can head to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and find all kinds of information about cool stuff. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find show notes to the episodes that Holly and I have done and an archive of every episode ever. We also have four videos we made, and those are all on our website, too. 
So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 